Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm David Hagland, and this is a Slate Spoiler Special on True Detective Season 1, the HBO show starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, which wrapped up last night in, I would say, dramatic fashion. Some people might disagree with that, maybe even some of the people in this room. But first, let me introduce them. To my left is Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Hi, Willa. Hi. And we're also joined by Jessica Winter, the uh, Slate's business and technology editor. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hi, Jessica. And also Forrest Wickman, a Slate staff writer. Hi, Forrest. Hey, David. So we're going to, as the title of this podcast indicates, spoil everything that happened in season one of this show. But before we get into that, I want to just gauge where everyone is right now on this series, specifically with regard to the finale. Um, So briefly, starting over here with you, Forrest, were you satisfied, disappointed, frustrated, all of the above? Yeah, I uh, I liked the show. I thought it was a very good show. I thought it was not nearly as good as a lot of the hype sort of built it up to be or was hoping it to be. And eventually, with many people, I think expected it to be. I don't think that its creator, although he's promised a lot of things that he didn't deliver on because he seems uh, to have a very high regard for his work and what he's doing, I don't think he ever promised a big plot twist. And I think that's what a lot of people were expecting and didn't get it and so we're disappointed and it's true that you know reddit seemed to be better at plotting out this show than (laughs) than he was in some ways when it just came down to the plot but i don't think that was ultimately what he's been interested in um overall and i thought it was just like a good uh like good characters great performances and kind of an interesting genre piece with big ideas in it it was not as deep as those ideas are but it was still interesting that i had them jessica I loved the series. I loved it formally and structurally. I loved the performances. I loved it on a technical level. Um, It was completely obsession-worthy. I strongly disliked the last episode, but I don't think the last episode will taint what came before it. I can enjoy those seven episodes and sort of let the eighth episode go. A lot of great shows have trouble with finales, and this is is no exception. Um, And we'll get into the finale, obviously, but I, I think there was a lot in the finale that Uh, did not work the same way as the first seven episodes did. It was baggy and hectic at the same time, whereas the previous episodes were kind of slow-paced, but they were also expertly calibrated in dispensing information as and when you needed it. And this episode didn't really tell us much that we didn't already know. It had great set pieces. It had great lines in it. But it didn't reveal much of anything. And I actually do think it had something of a twist ending, not a satisfying one, but it had a twist ending in one of the characters seemed to undergo a very abrupt transformation in terms of his worldview, which I did not find convincing, but I have a feeling you guys did. So we can get into that. So <laughs> I'm going to be the person who hates this the most, just for fun. <laughs> Someone's got to be that person. Um, yeah. No, I, obviously, I really loved True Detective. I've had a great time watching it. I thought eight episodes is a perfectly lovely bite-sized amount of television for us all to get really obsessed with. Yeah. It's been really interesting to watch how much it's kind of gained steam. It's almost like this 
refutation of Netflix just in and of itself. You know, we all got to get really excited altogether. Um, that said, I was not a huge fan of this last episode. You know, I think that there is a difference between M. Night Shyamalan... I'm going to say his name wrong. I only say Shyamalan now <laughs> in my regular life, so I no longer can say his name properly. And being really boring. And there is a huge, vast world in between. And I think that True Detective could have very easily existed within that world. And it sort of chose not to. Exactly as Jessica was saying, you know, we knew going into the final episode, basically, that Lawnmower Man or Scarman or Errol Childress was a bad guy. And that was kind of not furthered upon much. I mean, we learned more about the creepy ways that he's a bad guy. But that was really like the climax plot-wise of the show. And we got there last week. And so then this week we had, you know, this opening bit with Steve, which turns out was completely irrelevant. I mean, they didn't actually get any information from him. And they just realized they had to go back and start looking at all these tax records and figured it out a whole other way. And then there's this huge chase in this weird Carcosa, you know, where Rust is or is not having various revelations and, you know, hallucinations. And then there's just kind of at the very end, um, exactly, Rust kind of finds some optimism, which I, you know, I just read this interview with the creator, Nick Pizzolatto, and he said that he, that was sort of where he'd been going the whole time, that this last line, like him saying, you know, about the lightness, light winning, was where he was headed when he was envisioning the whole series. But I didn't actually feel like the moment of Rust <laughs> headbutting Errol Childress on the tip of a knife and almost dying and realizing, like, that there's this whole horrible, horrifying you know, murder fort out in the middle of the swamp that all these other people are involved with who are never going to be caught would have led to him having this epiphany that life is not really horrible, even though it also involved, you know, his daughter being in the afterlife with him, so loving th- him forever. <laughs> I don't know if the show doesn't think that life is really horrible. I think that in the end, Russ just chooses to look at things differently. Like he's looking at the sky and there are these tiny points of light amidst vac- like this vast, so endless you see vacuum that, right? of the universe. Oh, I mean, I think, so to me, I I think it's exactly the kind of dorm room conversation thing that people have been lobbying at the show from the beginning. And I wasn't, I mean, I know none of us were sure what the show would end up being until it ended. And I think a lot of us were hoping for more, but I think it did end up being just that. And I think dorm room conversations are totally interesting when people are, you know, well-read and you're not going to solve the mystery of How the universe. How many of those dorm room conversations ended with everyone being like, and life is pretty good because there no, no, no. are stars. Like, I well, agree that's that that's what that's it is. the He's whole just thing. saying that there are at least these tiny points. I think, in other words, that's similar to the to the way that the plot plays out, which is to say that it's not really a happy ending in, in that there's still this vast, like, evil conspiracy that remains out there, but at least that they, they got this one point of light and that they took down this, you know, comic book supervillain. They already had that point of light in the fifth episode. The fifth episode of the series is, to me, the most rich and complex and Agreed. satisfying. Because in, halfway through the fifth episode, they get their one guy. They take down their one guy, Reggie Ledoux, who they think is the key to this whole enterprise. And then that's the episode where the third storyline is braided so beautifully, the 2002 storyline that tells you no. Reggie Ledoux was only one part of the puzzle, and it's this great, vast conspiracy. And so we think we're motoring toward a climax where we're not just getting the one guy. And what did we spend an hour last night doing? Getting the one guy. It was episode five all over again, but somehow this time we were supposed to be cosmically satisfied by it. Also, and the other, you- thing, the, the other thing is that, you know, Rust Cole 
is such a such a joy and such a thrill of a character to experience because he is extremely peculiar and he's very true to his own peculiarities and he knows himself and he is incapable of lying to himself and having seen his daughter and lost his daughter again having almost died having uncovered this horrible horrible uh, Carcosa out, out in the wherever he was and also finding out that you know 17 years went past and he didn't realize that he had the killer right in front of him 17 years ago with all of this information he's going to look into the sky and see light I, I don't he's going to see it. tiny tiny no, points of light he I think even like, said he, he even said like we didn't get them all you know like yeah. in the hospital room and yeah. he's like we right. got ours and then right. suddenly half an hour later it, you know Three minutes later in the show, maybe the next morning, he's like, "Oh no, it's fine." Yeah, kind of. But he had it. He had that. a he had a near death experience. I think that right. So you can you can decide that that's not persuasive or compelling, or that it wasn't realized dramatically in the way that it should have been. But it's not that he sat down intellectually and thought, well, let me weigh every experience that I've had now and decide whether or not there is more evil or good in the universe. It's that he experienced this feeling of love that gave him hope to go on. That, that's what happened in the end. I have to say that for me, I, there are problems that I had with the finale, but the most persuasive thing I've seen from Pizzolatto was the comment that this was what the show was building toward, because that's exactly how it felt to me. That, yes, this is where Rust was going from the beginning. He was never a true dyed-in-the-wool nihilist. If he was, why was he so honest? Why was he so committed to you know, trying to get the bad guys. There was always a kernel of of hope in there. And this experience finally brought that out in a way. And that's what the whole show is about. I, I do think that there are aspects of the plotting, you know, that were not um, fantastic. In fact, I think that's probably was always the show's Achilles heel in a way. I think the conversations between Marty and Rust were fantastic throughout, including in the finale. I thought that Rust's speechifying was always fun. I thought the action sequences were generally very good. But whenever there was a segment on the show, like in the finale, when they're, oh, look, there's a green house. Maybe his ears were green because of that. Especially when there was a really simple explanation that, I mean, that people thought it was a lawnmower headphones, which actually makes a ton of sense and it's easier than being like lime green he put his hands to his ears and then ran through the forest did we ever even um learn where that photo i mean they said oh there are these canvassing photos and they're sort of looking through them and then he spots a greenhouse and that that, i assume it appeared earlier but it did not ring any bells for me yeah Yeah. i mean i i think that was a weakness and insofar as people are disappointed with the finale i think I, i don't think it's that necessarily people wanted a big twist they wanted to know who was in the conspiracy and to really know who the yellow king was and what that meant and the show didn't didn't tell us and i'm fine with that but i can see why that would be I, frustrating you know i think that there is this become this kind of false you know verse false uh, conflict between this idea of a genre show and like something highbrow where people have philosophical conversations and make art um, and in some of the interviews that pizzolatto has done and today and before you know, really, he's been aggressively like, I'm disinterested in murder. I'm disinterested in the crime. I don't care about that at all. And and he's extended that sort of to be like, I'm really not interested in the genre pleasures of this show. I'm making art. This is a totally bogus and ridiculous 
dichotomy that all future showrunners making TV should <laughs> toss out the window. And it actually comes straight from The Killing, which is where he worked before as well, which is, of course, genre pleasures matter to every great television show. This is like what The Wire and The Sopranos and Breaking Bad have done so well. They just incorporated those things, mobster, cop, all these cliches, and they elevated them. And the idea that True Detective was not a cop show is completely ridiculous and like to ignore what was really pleasurable about it. Not all of that was pleasurable about it, but a huge part of what was pleasurable about it, which is, you know, there's all these jokes. Next season, it should take place in an herb garden. Maybe, like, (laughs) Russ should be running a convenience store. You know, that isn't actually a TV show. Like, listening to Matthew McConaughey give speeches that are in some intro, you know, philosophy 101 class. I mean, not that I wouldn't listen to Matthew McConaughey read an audiobook of Nietzsche or something, but it's like, that isn't a TV show. And what this show was, was a cop show that had this narrative that was extremely important to us tuning in every week, not because it was the only thing that was going on, but because stories go somewhere. There's some, there's, there is a tautness and a narrative pull that is really important and makes a show pleasurable. And so something about this finale, like the idea that he was giving that we were getting sort of what the show was always about, which was not really about murder, a murder. It was about these two bros, you know, and I think the real happy ending of the show is obviously Rust and Marty's love and friendship, you know, them being there, him supporting each other, their, their, you know, forever love um, is, you know, it, it isn't just about that. It was also about this murder. That was really important. And to kind of like, half-ass it a little bit in the end in that last finale in the in the episode you know you can say that's highbrow I think that's kind of obnoxious it's a little bit con it's condescending is what it is there was a lot of material there that and a lot of questions that I think could have been very gracefully and easily answered without really with with him still having his exact same ending you know there's things that he could have brought in that would have just been enriching for all of us watching because we've been curious about it. So I completely agree with almost everything you said. The, the first thing I disagree with is I'm still not sure that the show didn't deliver on all of its promises in terms of the plot. I, just, I mean, I think that this is a whole larger conversation, but I do think that the sort of Reddit world of endless speculation built up expectations for this show that it never totally made for itself and things that we... You know, we would look at them and we would think, is this meaningful? And in retrospect, they just weren't or they were only meaningful thematically. Uh, All of that, that whole conversation that to some extent we should say Slate did participate in a little bit. The Atlantic participated in it. Everybody had fun with it. But I think it set up expectations plot wise that the show didn't necessarily set up for itself. I think that that's I think that's not quite true because. He was talking about the Yellow King every single episode. He's taken huge tracks of dialogue from all of these other horror writers. I mean, all these names have multiple significances. I'm not saying he had any obligation to explore them, but it is an interesting thing because it was there. It's not it's not that these little rabbit holes weren't present. I mean, there's shows where they're not present and you can't follow down like you can't you can't walk down them. They were here and he just didn't care very much. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I. I agree with that, and which gets into the second response I would have to that, which is totally I think that this show plays in a sort of tradition of subverting genre where it's it's genre at the same time as it's trying to do something that is, you know, I don't want to use this phrasing, but I think Pizzolatto thinks of it as higher brow. I think he drank his own Kool-Aid and started dropping names like 
in the most recent interview, you know, Faulkner and Conrad a lot more and more and more. But you can look at the show and, for example, the finale has a reference to Daredevil with this Lachaim fat ass thing, which was a very funny line. Kind of a line that would only appear not in Faulkner, but in, you know, Marvel Comics or something. And I think he was always mixing that all together. And this is why it reminds me a lot more of, like, an Alan Moore graphic novel or something like that than anything else. And that it, it, I think it's trying to do both of those things at once. Maybe it didn't satisfy either of those things 100%. I don't think it's this is, like, some masterpiece. Um, but I thought it played in that middle ground pretty successfully. I mean, I think the one other thing besides plot is this stuff about these ancillary characters, you know, which is one of the critiques of the show has been that there is Marty and Rust and then there's kind of everybody else. And Marty and Rust have been extremely well drawn. We kind of know them extremely intimately. We don't kind of. We know them very well. And everybody else around them has been much more superficial. Um, You know, they have these moments, I think, sometimes where they seem like real people these you know their dialogue will be extremely kind of crystallizing these these supporting characters but we still don't really know anything about them and obviously that has kind of come to a head most often in the female characters in this sort of debate about the show about whether or not it has been terrible to its women whether it's been completely negligent whether it's up to something else you know and i had i've argued that i thought the show was aware of kind of how poorly it was treating its female characters and that was part of its projection of Marty and Rust's worldview particularly you know they don't see them either then you get to this finale and it's really hard to think that that really added up to something uh, not just in terms of women but sort of in terms of everybody else around them like like somehow the show is better for only being hugely blinkered about just Rust and Marty now I'm not. I think the characterization of both those those characters has been really impressive and interesting, and and they're both characters that will stay, I think, with me and probably in the conversation for a very long time. But it's not better <laughs> that all these other supporting people are are sort of um, superficial. It isn't better, and and the reality is about this eight episodes. It's very truncated, but they took a lot of time with these last couple episodes. You know. In episode maybe four it's or, or even three, you sort of thought, oh, maybe like next week they're going to get the killer and then there's going to be three whole episodes of this case being done and it's just going to be a character piece. You know, that sort of seemed like what was going to happen. There was all this time and that isn't sort of how the case played out. But then there's just been all this time where they sort of filled it not with fleshing out anything else except for Marty and Rust. And I don't. I think that's a real, like, failing of the show. I think the fact that, you know, Maggie and Audrey, who we have all these questions about, who in flits and flashes seemed really, like, dynamic people that we weren't being given access to, you know, show up at Marty's bedside. So they can literally, like, we can see them for half a second, and then it can just be a close-up of Marty's face, literally. Yeah, they're devices in order to show you that the character has closure. I think that the character of um, the sister, the half-sister, whoever she is, who's in uh, the the old house uh, with Errol, um, sort of crystallizes the show's woman problem. And I've gone back and forth with, is it misogynist? Is it metamisogynist? Is it just clueless about its female characters? I think it's just clueless about its female characters because that woman, I can't remember her name, was yet another example of how this show can only deal with women in terms of their sexual power or their lack thereof as expressed by the sexualized violence that is visited upon them. And if that's a commentary on how women are treated in this world, then that's fine. Um, it needed it a little more. really the only thing that the show was consistent about. 
And also, I have to say the one thing about that, the Errol and his sister stuff that I found so really grotesque beyond just how obviously grotesque it was is like they put a lot of time into teaching us that Errol was good at having sex. I mean, like, that's a really weird thing in Mm -hmm. that scene. Like, he gets that woman off, like, twice. You know, there's a whole, like, scene where they're a freaky scene in the house where we just hear them making love noises, you know? Mm -hmm. And and that is such a weird thing. All we know about Errol is that he's this horrible sexual pervert, right? Like, he is a pedophile and a rapist. And then we see these multiple scenes where it's not even, like, where he's just kind of getting this mentally ill half-sister woman off, which I just thought was such a strange... Like, she just really wants to have sex with him. And it's not like... Obviously, the whole thing is so gross and perverse. It's not like we're supposed to be turned on by that. But just what a weird detail. Like, that guy would have a much more... It just should have been much more upsetting and disgusting. We had an hour. We had one more hour with these people. And this is how they chose to spend it. They chose to spend it, you know, with the brother and sister having sex and the completely pointless exchange with Gracie. And there was just so much uh, misspent time, I thought, that it it actually made me anxious. I could feel the time ticking away and realizing (laughs) how much they were squandering it. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt that way a little bit and agree with every everything you guys said about the gender uh, dynamics of this show. With the scene in the house, I do think it's a great example of how heavy-handed this show could be and the weakness of its writing sometimes. I didn't see that scene as... I think that scene was maybe about that to some extent, but I think when I was watching it, it was just about rubbing your nose and how grotesque these people were. And it was just one example of five different things they did to remind us that this man is a monster that we're not necessary at all because we, we already knew. We yeah, we already knew it. he it was a been... mass murderer and child molester and they still have to so- show him shoot a dog, which is the oldest trick in the book, just to cap it off. And it's like, we don't we don't need that. We don't need the creepy lullaby that you've seen right. in every thriller right. And ever. ultimately, there's something so like other TV shows. So this is just exactly like all other TV shows shows really hollow about the idea that there's this very disturbed kind of strange obviously strange man who has what like for 20 years eluded the authorities and killed dozens of people and not you know in some house that literally if anyone were to knock on the door would know was like red flag danger murderer zone you know so it's like oh is he a mastermind is he some criminal genius or is he actually like this really freaky strange dude who's like immediately recognizable and rememberable, like memorable to everybody as the guy with scars on his face that they just haven't caught. It's like are Rust and Marty it just are Rust and Marty super smart? Is that guy super smart? Like that guy isn't super smart. So again, it's just it has this feel of this thing that happens in shows where it's like the bad guy is somehow like kind of a genius, even though especially in this case, we know he was the opposite of that. There's no way that he was anything but totally unbalanced. Well, I have a question for you guys that ties into that and gets back to this question of the conspiracy, which we haven't really discussed. The show made it clear that there was a conspiracy, right? The videotape was in uh, Reverend Tuttle's house, and then he died sound mysteriously. And there's five people on the videotape. Right, there are five people on the videotape, which, you know, could be um, Errol, Reggie, DeWall, and two other guys. So who are the two other guys uh, how exactly does Tuttle fit in? Did you think that the show, uh, that the writer, you know, Nick Pizzolatto, the director, did they have answers to these questions but decide not to spend time on them? Or do you really think that they don't even know the answers to them? I think on a certain level, you know, Tuttle is dead. Uh, 
Childress, who's Errol's father, right, is dead. Ted Childress, the uh, sheriff. Ted Childress, the sheriff. He's dead. Um, Ledoux, obviously, is dead. And now Errol Childress is dead. So most of the main players in this are accounted for. So on that level, yes. But on a whole other level, and this was what made the show so rich and fascinating and what it didn't deliver on, is when you're looking at Dora Lang's notebooks or the other victim, what was her name? Ryan. Rihanna oh, Olivier. Rihanna Olivier. Um, you know, they're, they're talking about the Yellow King and Carcosa and they were taking lots of drugs and they seemed to be swept up in a cult and were completely in the thrall of a cult leader. And we got this with Reggie Ledoux as well. And... I don't know who the Yellow King is. It wasn't Errol Childress. They weren't, you know, they weren't worshiping in the altar of, of that guy. Um, so that whole, that whole other level and latticework of it was just completely abandoned, it seemed like, at the end. And that, and that was really frustrating. And also Carcosa, people spoke so fondly of Carcosa. I thought it was going to be like an eco-lodge with like lots of folk art and stuff. And it was this. It like, almost was. <laughs> it was like this planetarium from hell. Like, what was that? Like, I, I don't think that that sweet elderly lady that we saw in the seventh episode who spoke so fondly of it, like, she wasn't hanging out in that pit. And then there was, you know, in the fifth episode when we meet, um, when we see those kids, those, 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 you know, one of them is dead and the other one is, is permanently traumatized. They're not, where are they? Like, what, what does that place have to do with Carcosa? How, how did Reggie Ledoux fit into the rest of the conspiracy? And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's because I've spent too much time on, a, on Reddit, you know, thinking about these questions, um, you know, that I'm, I'm so fascinated by them and I'm so frustrated that none of them were answered. These were questions that were laid out by the show and the show chose not to answer them. And I didn't need all of them answered. I didn't need to know why Audrey had arranged her dolls exactly how she would if she had been, you know, an abuse victim of this cult. I, I, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't need to know. I needed to know some things. They had to give me something, and they gave me very little, I felt like. I did think the one, I did like that the newscaster said, like, the Tuttles have basically denied, effectively it seemed, having any blood relationship right. to Errol. So I I thought that was, like, a nice touch, because, like, we know that they do have a blood relationship, and we know that they're powerful enough to sort of deny it. So that took care of, for me, a little bit some of the conspiracy stuff, because obviously it is a conspiracy. But, I mean, that t- I think that there were it's just like the thing about Reddit is actually funny is that it sort of sucks out your own faith in your own observation. So it's like just watching, there was lots of things that I thought and I would send you guys emails and you'd be like, yeah, girl, Reddit's on it. And I'd be like, uh uh-huh. You know, so it's like there are things watching at home that these are questions that, you know, you could wonder. Like Errol worked at a cemetery. Why aren't the bodies just buried at a cemetery. I mean, that just like seems like a cute, clever like resolution instead of being at this sort of fort. And I I don't know that that's because... So I think that Pizzolatto, I actually think they probably do know what happened. Not. I don't think it's that complicated what happened. I, I think they didn't answer some of those questions. And I think they didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how to kind of like... Uh, solve them in a way that would have been really satisfying for us that would have really sort of been no skin off their back, basically. But I think they I think they sort of knew because I just think, again, it's not as he said, it wasn't a twist. It's not really a twist. We just needed like 
some details. Explained. It's not like the footman in Lost, you know, where literally they have no idea why the sculpture is there still. I mean, maybe that's one of the ones they solved. <laughs> with Lost, I gave up on the things they know. But, you know, it's like, I think that it's, it's sort of straightforward what could have happened. They just didn't really want to get into it. Well, now's probably a good time to hear from our sponsor. The sponsor of the Slate Spoiler Special is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want, and select from a library of over 150,000 titles. Listeners to the Slate Spoiler Special can get a free audiobook when they sign up with Audible.com for the first time. If you use this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. We like to recommend a specific book for you, and since we were just discussing True Detective, written by Nick Pizzolatto, I'm going to recommend Galveston, his crime novel, which apparently will itself become a major motion picture in the near future. So you can get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audiblepodcast.com spoiler. The spoiler special thanks Audible for its support. All right, back to True Detective. Willa, you said that you thought the writers behind, you know, that Nick Pizzolatto, Kerry Fukunaga, that they probably did know the answers, chose not to answer them. I think we should spend a little bit of time trying to answer them ourselves, right? There was some conspiracy going on. Do any of you feel like you have a grasp on how that conspiracy might have worked, who the key players were, how these murders, these mysterious missing girls were kept out of the papers, etc.? So, okay, the Tuttles had a lot of strings they could pull. They had a lot of power. They had a governor turned senator who presumably helped them out in some regard. Maybe, maybe not. Um, or so, I and think they, had, it, they had a sheriff. They had connections in law enforcement. Uh, they had money. They had real estate. They had property. And they had the kind of institutional, governmental, and financial pull to start what was basically a charter school pro- program, right? And so there were kids being bused one, two hours each way to these other schools, to, to public schools. And so they had set up a tu- tuition reimbursement program to start their own schools, And so they could use that real estate and all the power conferred upon them uh, to use those schools as, um, I I don't know how to put it. um, Training grounds for victims? Harvest. Pedophile mills. Yeah. Yeah. But so do you think that that that's actually was the, the motivation behind the schools? If you were to guess? That's a great question. I mean, there seems like, there seems like there was this deep religious mythology within the family. I mean, that's the interview last week with the woman who had worked for the Tuttles who kind of started, you know, the Yellow King, Carcosa, sort of like fugue stating, suggests that there's this long history there of kind of certain sort of sacrificial rituals that may have not always involved small children, but did involve sort of weird and increasingly strange stuff. I think we're supposed to think probably that Errol Childress, because he was so abused by his own father... Um, kind of took some of this mythology that was around him and in his kind of crazed, abused, whatever brain, gave birth to something much more foul and despicable that he convinced other people to kind of go along with him him in, you know, basically raping and abusing these children and was supported and sort of um, protected by the Tuttles and the Childresses, like that large family as a whole. So so that there was this, a, a huge institution, a huge familial institution to kind of protect their sort of black sheep 
family member in doing really, really, really horrible things. I mean, that said, of course, it seems like it's a little confusing that someone as obviously perverse and broken and sort of disturbing as Errol could have convinced anybody to do anything except for, you know, Reggie Ledoux or various other like acid head, meth head, disturbed people, which, you know, is, is were a lot of his victims and were the people were Reggie and, and sort of the other people we've seen in prison that had to do with him. See, I, I read it a little differently. I read it as you know, his father or his grandfather was probably the charismatic cult leader Hubbard figure in all of this, and that Errol was sort of the last twisted branch of this family tree, and it ended with him. Right. I mean, we, I never thought that Errol was the Yellow King. But then that said, like, it does seem if he was the major perpetrator of so many of these crimes, and he has like 20 bodies on his you know, ranch, and he keeps showing up in all these other sort of situations. It's almost like maybe he was the most, you know, he's the one at the frat party who takes it too far. I mean, a frat party obviously yeah. being a really tame version of whatever they're doing. But, you know, like they they have these rituals where they go, you know, where the, 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 his cousin remembers the hunt where the men were too tired in the morning to go hunting, mm-hmm. suggest, you know, suggesting to me that they'd had sort of like one of their performances. And he... And, you know, Red, I mean, uh, Childress was there being the freakiest one at this sort of group activity. Um, and then he, you know, which there's weird things here, right? It's like if he's not the Yellow King, then what is he doing building Carcosa, like filling each hallway with these weird mystical tree twig things? You know, it's it's sort of it seemed at once like he was too unbalanced to be the one in charge. And at the same time, like they didn't suggest that there was somebody else. I and also, I mean, you don't have to be a member of the plausibility police to, add, you know, I don't I generally don't care if a show is plausible as long as it has a certain internal logic and can stick to it. But the fact that this man who we were told we, we didn't just see on sight that he was a conspicuously strange figure. We were told by other people that he was a conspicuously strange figure. Memorable to everybody. Memorable to everyone as a weird guy uh, is painting schools and going about his business and no one ever identified him, not even Rustin Cole, the most observant person on the planet. No one ever said, hey, that guy. It is also strange to me that Rust and Marty didn't spend some time theorizing about who was really pulling Childress's strings because it just, in the one hand, it seems so bogus to us, right? Like, Childress is such a weirdo. How could he be the one who was really influencing everyone? You sort of would just imagine Rustin Marty would have had a chat about that. Like, not that they could have gotten those guys. Why do we think they didn't have a chat about it? I mean, my assumption at the the end of the finale was that they, well, Rust at least still believes this vast conspiracy is out there he's going to do what he can to bring it down maybe i mean i mean because he's just it's just not in his character to just let it exist however it's chinatown he probably won't be able to bring it on (laughs) you know there's more blackness than light in the sky and you just have to do your best and keep fighting um and yeah and and that's it i mean he said early on in the season and this is a this is a, a quote that uh, I think we should keep in mind when we're talking about the expectations that the show sets up for itself. He says early in the season, this is a show where nothing is solved. A world, Which, but oh, close. Oh, <laughs> what? A, a world, world where nothing is solved. What if he said oh, this, is say this is a show? That Sorry, be, yeah, that was just a Really broke slip. the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah well, but, but I think effectively that's what he's saying. Oh, I agree. Or at least that's the expectation but there's, that of course, he's at least suggesting. But the thing is, this is, again, like we can be meta and then there's a way to... That's meta instead of being like concretely like there's this is a case 
this is a world where nothing is solved. This is a world where nothing is solved. I'm not expecting all the Tuttles to be wrapped in handcuffs and brought down to like the courthouse. Of course not. But there's, you know, there's a way for us in the audience to have some clarity about what happened and then to even be more horrified at the extent to which they were failed to kind of bring this, these many people to justice. I mean, I'm not saying that that has to happen, but I don't think that those things are are antithetical. You know, like we can have solutions and still be like, oh, it's Chinatown. You know, it, this is all really messed up and there's, they're going to fight this good fight and lose. Yeah, I think that that's what the show achieved for me. Right. I mean, that's the thing. For me, the the largest unanswered question in my mind, I guess, is the, the precise nature of, of Reverend Tuttle's involvement. Because he had the videotape. Did he ever participate exactly? I'm not sure. Was but- he really sent to like kibosh their investigation in 95 like did that i think he probably was i mean because so the way i see it one thing we haven't really touched on particularly is that you know we did learn in the finale that sam tuttle the grandfather he abused both errol i think it's Mm -hmm. said or implied and Mm -hmm. his sister that's living with him right tell me about grandpa yeah so clearly this abuse goes back at least to him maybe it goes further back um and yet they've seem to have been able to protect uh, the nature of exactly what was going on and to latch on to the, the sets, the, you know, the set of beliefs and of religious practices, career de Mardi Gras, the winter festival that, that Rust mentions. Um, and so that when, for instance, the old maid starts talking about Carcosa, her notion of what it is, is very different. There was also the uh, minister played by the wires, Clark Peters, early on in the series, who said, oh, these look like devil's nests, my auntie or my grandma. He'd seen them before as well and had some idea of what their purpose was. Didn't think it was connected to ritual sex abuse. So I think the show did actually fill in a lot of these gaps without stating explicitly, and maybe as explicitly as as it could have or even should have in the end, what what was happening. But I think, you know, Jessica, I, I agree with your general take that the titles are powerful. They're sort of protecting exactly what's going on. There's some tradition here of, of abuse that has been hidden. Hidden. They don't want it to come out. They don't want the, the you know, literal skeletons in their family's closet to come out. Mm-hmm. That's basically the nature of the conspiracy, I, I think. Yeah, I agree with all that as well. The one possibility that we haven't thrown out that I do think is getting a lot of pickup that is what flashed into my mind as well for what it's worth, don't think it really matters. The Yellow King, I thought maybe it was this giant, uh, like, sculpture in the middle of Carcosa that was a giant... It was just, like, a giant skeleton made to look like a big The thing that Marty, that Russ saw before the sky opened up. I don't even remember when it was, and it seemed like it was maybe sort of yellow. Right, I I think... Yeah, I mean, I I think... I I don't really... You know, whatever, does it matter? I I don't think so, but... I I have a question. Sure. Because I think... I sort of want to I want to get a little bit away from the plot mechanics. I think the way that this room is dividing, and this is when I was talking to you when we were writing last night, David, um, that what worked for you ultimately, I think, is like that last sequence with Rust and Marty. You found that like really touching, basically. And it made everything that had come before or not come before um, seem secondary to what was really important, which was this relationship and this sort of... Um, you know, emotional climax and, and Rust's journey. And that really didn't work for me super well. Um, and I just wanted you to talk about why it did work for you really well <laughs> before I just 
you know, crap all over it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a good place to go. I, I think a lot of it had to do with the performances. I mean, when Forrest was, was spelling out the metaphor before of light and dark, you pointed out how cheesy it was. There's no real counter to that. I mean, it is. Uh, although I was surprised when I, you know, put it down on the page, I transcribed it and, and posted it on site last night. I still thought it worked pretty well. But I had the memory of McConaughey's delivery, uh, you know, in my mind. And I think you've spent so much time with these characters and he has so persuasively realized him that I, I bought that he had reached this point where, you know, at the very end of despair, he had found something. Um, and, I, and I found that moving because, uh, because I was with him in that. Uh, you know, I was, I was persuaded by that. And it, it really comes down to that much. I also really loved their back and forth throughout the episode. And I, and I bought the relationship that they had. So all of, all of that worked. I, I think one other um, reason it worked that we haven't touched on is that specifically the show is uh, talking about that whole metaphor as just one way uh, of looking at things. Specific, so he, um, the whole conversation is about looking at the stars and t- then telling stories about them. And this is a show that, to some extent, I don't think it's super brilliant, but it is uh, has it plays with storytelling as as uh, as like a, a motif. And I think that. Uh, you know, they're each looking at the same thing, which is just this objective fact, and then they find a different way of looking at it and telling a story about it and making their own meaning out of it. And I think Rust basically just chooses to tell this other story that's slightly more optimistic, that's basically the glass is a hundredth full. <laughs> right. It was one percent full. It's funny, because yeah. for me about that last scene, and um, or, which was long, you know, I felt like this episode had about five endings. It really did. There was a number, you know, there's a moment where they're lying, dying on the floor. It could have ended. There's like the panning shot of all of the bayou. It could have ended. There was a lot of moments that it could have ended. But, you know, that last scene of them sort of in this parking lot of the, this very well-lit parking lot, um, or sort of elegantly lit, there was a lot of beats between them that I thought were great. Like, I really loved that Marty gave him cigarettes. Like, I really um, loved... The little Tiffany box. Yeah, totally. I really loved that Marty, like didn't address that he was sobbing, you know, just sort of like kind mm-hmm. of tried, mm-hmm. let it be and and tried to just sort of talk about, mm-hmm. not to change the subject even, just to talk it through, um, you know, that you're unkillable stuff. A lot of a lot of real sweetness between them that I found really endearing as well as like the them, you know, giving each other the middle finger in the scene before with Marty slurping on his ice thing, <laughs> like, you know, really funny and cute. But I thought the actual content of like just the light and darkness metaphor. I mean, it just was like, it really reminded me of Star Wars. I mean, he's talking about like the force, you know, and I, I don't, so I don't understand how he's talking about the force. What about it? It's like the light, the force of light versus the force of darkness. It's like Darth Vader and Luke. I mean, it's very like, to me, it just seemed very, in terms of, it's just like very, very good versus evil. It's very black and white. (laughs) It's very light and dark. (laughs) And, and that, and like, so, it's it's fine. Like I I you know watching Rust cry. I un, like I'm with him. I I thought that was a really sweet scene about them, and I am happy for Rust that he's found one one hundredth of the glasses full. But I did just think on a on a writing level that it actually wasn't up to the originality of a lot of Rust's thought. So like the guy who calls us sentient meat. Like I'm not sure that his 
happy, like epiphany is like, oh, it turns out like there was darkness and then there was light. And so light must be winning. I mean, like to talk about like very, very like the first line, you know, to sort of quote the Bible by way of a fortune cookie. Like I just that didn't feel to me um, as it didn't feel up to the sort of the writing or the emotional emotionality of that character. Yeah, it's it's funny because the the chemistry between those two actors is extraordinary and trans so much of of what might have been wrong with this last episode. And you know, I count myself as very fortunate to be sentient meat at peak reconnaissance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm very fortunate. Um, and, you know, that, that actor, those actors can sell anything. You're absolutely right. It was moving and touching and tear-jerking. But if you actually look at the content, it was probably a little uh, lacking. Um, but what really struck me about that scene is that, you know, one of the things that's been fun about the reconnaissance is the, the apparent disconnect between these, these amazing places of turbulence and nihilism and darkness that he can tap into as an actor and the persona he presents when he's accepting an award, which is basically as like the church going, God fearing, like starry eyed, you know, nice guy. And I felt like Russ's last speech was not conceived and performed by Rust Cole. So totally. much it was conceived and performed by Matthew McConaughey. I, I and, thought there was so much synchronicity there with his yeah. Academy Awards thing. And, and you know, that's fun. Uh, you know, it, it worked like on its own level, but it did not work, you know, within the rest of the show. And I actually thought that maybe a cool ending for the show, really, really bleak, it could have been Rust in bed with the blacked out eyes, listening to the newscaster say, you know, law enforcement authorities are saying there's no connection to the Tuttles whatsoever. And he's looking out the window, pondering, you know, the the pointlessness of existence. <laughs> and then it rolls into all the landscape shots and it ends on the tree where everything began and where everything ends and scene. <laughs> this reminds um, me of like our Breaking Bad conversation. <laughs> where we're like, show, why weren't you more horrible and depressing? <laughs> yeah. <end?" laughs> well, Your happy ending is well, a the betrayal. Other, I mean, the other thing about it is that, you know, True Detective is one of many shows in the last five years that I think would call Twin Peaks its spiritual daddy. You know, like The Killing, Top of the Lake, um, I'd probably put The Fall and Broadchurch in there and a few others that I'm forgetting. And, um, Twin, you know, and I love that Twin Peaks casts as long as a shadow as it does. It's the show that was on the same network as Full House 25 years ago, and it was on for a season and a half. And um, But the thing about Twin Peaks, a friend of mine was saying this, actually, is that no one has ever really taken the bait of that ending, which is the bleakest ending you can possibly imagine. You take the, like, kind of mystical, philosophically inclined detective hero and you destroy him and then you finish the the series um and i wasn't expecting true detective to do that um and i probably would have felt pretty bad about that but i also think i would have felt more satisfied as a viewer well it's interesting also because nothing really has quite taken the bait of twin peaks because none of those shows have been actually supernatural or metaphysical in any way right they've sort of hinted at some of that stuff or had like a lot of rain but they haven't had bob you know, so right. and 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 obviously, True Detective was, I think, always really realist. Just it just had this mythology that it was discussing, and I wasn't expecting there to be mm-hmm. something sort of supernatural at the end, um, particularly. But you know, now that I've seen it, I wonder what that would have been like. You know, I I think that 
you just have to make a world that's like consistent. You could do you could have a consistent world in which there was sort of metaphysical stuff. And I think this is a place where I agree with you guys to the extent that I have a hard time figuring out exactly what all of the Yellow King and Carcosa stuff was doing in there as illusion, if not to set up the expectation that when you got to the center of it, it turned you mad and then turned you you into part of the problem. So for that reason, because of all these references, I was expecting the Bob ending. And I do think that's an expectation that the show set up. And I don't really know what to make of all of the Yellow King Carcosa stuff, except for as a lot of kind of spooky mumbo jumbo uh, now that, you know, Rust, like, why didn't Rust go mad? Well, so to my mind, this is the point that he was able to face the darkest possible thing, which had been set up as the darkest possible thing in part with all of that mythology and yet somehow come out of it with this you know, shred of hope. But I, I think that's the somehow to me. That, I mean, I sure. agree with right, you. But I, it, a, didn't, it didn't ruin it for me, but right. I, it was but that again gets a to place me, where I wasn't satisfied. That again gets to me to the, you know, whether or not you found his final speech dramatically persuasive or not. But I, I, I think, you know, Jessica and, and Willa have obliquely raised a couple of questions that I'd like for us to end on, which is what we might expect from this series going forward. Because, you know, this is an anthology series Rust Cole, Marty Hart are gone. Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson are gone. Carrie Fukunaga will apparently be attached going forward as an executive producer, but may not direct, or at least not direct every episode. Uh, Nick Pizzolatto is writing every episode of the next season. Uh, And is that a show you're looking forward to? How much of the quality of this season came down to McConaughey and Harrelson? I mean, we're going to see. I'm really interested to see what happens next. You know, this is not, True Detective is not the only anthology series on TV, although it's one of few. I mean, there's American Horror Story on FX. I suspect that there will be more going forward just because this is a really impressive precedent, right? You get two movie stars to do a thing for two months. Look what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been great for them as well. You know, it seems like a really good solution to people have busy schedules doing TV. I think we'll see more of it. But, you know, American Horror Story is held together by recurring cast members who sort of play, they're sort of like a, you know, they play different parts, but they show up again and again. And a tone, a really campy, over-the-top Ryan Murphy tone. I don't know what the next True Detective will look like, but I have to say that if it involves a really philosophical, you know, detective in 1930s, like in Water Rights, California, which Pizzolatto has said he's really interested in and referenced in a BuzzFeed interview. I thought he said in the last 30 years. Maybe it's the last that? Water Rights in California in any event. Right? Okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were referring to like Chinatown. Um, yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, if there's a detective... That sounds like Rust Cole doing that. That will be really weird. But that said, you know, what does what is True Detective without a character that is sort of as gripping and engaging and particular as Rust Cole and without the chemistry that him and Marty have? So, you know, especially given that the plotting, I think, ultimately was not really the strong suit of the show, even though the the atmosphere that it created up until the finale was was really important to our, our you know, interest. I am not. You know, what what does next year look like? It's going to have to be totally different. And I don't know. There's a huge I think it's hard to repeat something like this and have it be totally different at the same time. And I think that there's a reason that people have writer's rooms and that he's doing it all by himself. And he clearly thinks very much of himself, which, (laughs) you know, he made an awesome TV show that people are obsessed with. 
it'd be hard not to. But you just sort of worry that some like some of those more pretentious inclinations would get blown up and then not be controlled by really awesome actors and a really great director. And, you know, it's so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that one of my favorite things about this show is the way that it pointed to more than almost any other show, the way it pointed to a sort of middle ground between the movies and TV and really made that work. And I think a big part of that, though not at all the only part, was having one director all the way through. And so I am I am a little disappointed and a little concerned that they're not going with that uh, for the second season. And we'll see how it works. You know, t- Top of the Lake uh, alternated, I think, a little bit between two directors. Um, Twin Peaks, it's not as if David Lynch directed every episode and i think both of those shows are better than this one um and so it could still be a very good show uh but that is one you know small concern and disappointment i have going into the second season i do want to just say also that i think one thing that's interesting about true detective and why we'll sort of see it repeated is it's like it's been this really big advertisement for watching tv on time and oh yeah you know so there's like, you know, Netflix put out House of Cards, I think a couple weeks into when True Detective came out and it went, it came, it went, <laughs> you know, True Detective is still here. And and that's a really, you know, HBO I'm sure is ecstatic, but it's a really interesting thing. You know, they, they did it and it doesn't, you know, your show has to be really good and it has to hit sort of all the right beats. Um, but it did hit those beats and it became a phenomenon, I think, in a way that, you know, even if it had been on Netflix and it had been an event that it was all at once, it just it kind of wouldn't be the same thing. There's something to be said for giving people time. Um, and so I think that's that's pretty interesting. I do also, you know, in thinking about why it became a phenomenon versus something like, you know, Top of the Lake, which I think got amazing reviews and I loved and is you should all watch it. It's on Netflix as well. Um, you know, there is this thing about sort of um, dude shows. And and what we think of as the great dramas of, you know, our time, and they are all dude shows um, or whatever antihero series that we're going to use better language, uh, more precise language. And and the way that True Detective slots in so perfectly to, um, you know, a trajectory with Breaking Bad or Mad Men or The Wire or Deadwood, although these guys ended up being really heroes, I think is very interesting and stark in sort of um, how how things become a phenomenon. And I think there is, you know, I don't want to like cast huge gender <laughs> stereotypes here, but I think, you know, there's a, there's a kind of show that I like that's bad, but it's like a soap opera. Like I would watch Nashville all the time. That's the Grey's Anatomy. And I think there's a certain kind of show like Ray Donovan say that appeals to some dudes in the same way. Like it hits their particular dude pleasure centers. Mm-hmm. And, and True Detective had all of those and was also really good. Um, and then I think that the fact of a certain kind of uh, male focus, which is like the Reddit thing, which is like getting OCD about indie bands or like getting OCD about baseball statistics that this like really played into. And it became like this frenzy, like this is the best show of all time. And anyone who doesn't like it is a not, you know, is, is sort of like it's, it's some version of like the Skylar White phenomenon, just like with people who didn't think the true detective was quite as good as that. Um, and I think that's been a really big part of what has made it a phenomenon. And I, I'm just really, you know, there was Mo Ryan just wrote, ran this piece last week on the occasion of true detective about how many women have made serious dramas for the major cable, you know, for FX and AMC and HBO and Showtime. And it's like legit. So embarrassing. I mean, it, it, like HBO is one or two and they should change that. But I think that there is something about also 
part of this reason this show caught on the way it did is it is really male and it is really for dudes. And I I have to think about that anyway some more. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you should hold back at all saying that. I completely agree with you. I think we should all think about that more, Willa. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, uh, thank you again for joining us for this Slate Spoiler Special. And we hope you will join us again next time. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.